0: Hello and welcome to the podcast series OK Doomer, which will outline the biggest risks to humanity and the planet, from nuclear war and climate change to AI and engineered pandemics.
1: And we promise with
0: optimism and laughs
1: some of the time.
0: I'm Jane Kinnamont, Policy and Impact Director at the European Leadership Network, or ELN for short. We are a network that brings people together across nationalities and sectors and generations To craft ideas and work with governments in order to reduce the risks of existential conflict and, above all, nuclear war.
1: I'm Eden Simpson, Project Coordinator for the ELN's New European Voices on Existential Risk Network, or NEVER for short, which brings together a mind-bogglingly brilliant set of experts, thinkers and doers from 16 countries, mostly under 30, and together we want to figure out how to fix these problems.
0: Over our six episodes, we'll dive into the four key areas of existential risk, and we'll bring you innovative ideas from whether it's a good idea to re-engineer the atmosphere to modify the sun's radiation, to what we might be able to eat during a nuclear winter. In each episode, we will introduce the issue with what's the problem, setting out a key problem that threatens to wreck the future of humanity and the planet. Welcome to this episode of OK Doomer. We're going to call this one Nuclear War. What is it good for? In this episode, we're going to dive into the world of nuclear weapons, the original man-made existential risk from way before we had any clue about climate change. Indeed, for my generation, which is kind of millennial, nuclear war mostly tends to seem anachronistic, a forgotten threat, or an old nightmare. Now, nuclear risks have come back to the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Mainly the war in Ukraine and Russia's use of nuclear threats there, but also nuclear proliferation to North Korea and the apparent breakdown of nuclear diplomacy with Iran. And there's a new wave of countries hinting that they might like to have nukes too. I know I said I wanted the world to pay attention to the risks, but I would really have been happy for that to happen through, for example, the movie Oppenheimer, and not through all of this.
1: I think we all wish that we could consign nuclear war to the realm of cinema and film instead. This might seem like a bit of an obvious question, but could you outline why exactly we should be worrying? I'll certainly be following up later with how we can stay safe.
0: Well, first of all, it's important to underline that in a world with lots of risks, Nuclear weapons are still unique in the worst ways. There are no other weapons with the same force. And they also have insanely long-lasting effects, as we can see from the only times they've been used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the US at the end of the Second World War. Today's bombs are up to 80 times as powerful as those that were dropped in Japan then. And a nuclear war would trigger an environmental disaster. It would have cascading effects on every aspect of how humans live on Earth, from climate to food supplies. And this is where the concept of nuclear winter comes in, the opposite of the kind of climate change that we usually think about, but just as destructive and probably much faster. And this is why the leaders of the five legally recognised nuclear weapon states have all said together that a nuclear war can never be won and must never be fought, words that were first said by Reagan and Gorbachev in the 80s. So, rationally, these weapons are often seen as so bad that they must be too bad to use.
1: But is that really foolproof? Um, Like, the world's supposed to just rely on the people building the world's biggest ever bombs to just promise to never actually use these huge, immense bombs they're spending loads of money to construct?
0: Well definitely if we were in a movie and the movie began with the idea that war is in the past because people have built bombs so powerful war will never happen again, that movie would already be setting you up to think that something terrible was going to happen and quite soon. But more seriously, there are several things that have helped to make sure that a nuclear war hasn't happened so far. So one is nuclear deterrence. And that essentially relies on that idea that there is a balance of threats. There is, in the old phrase, a mutually assured destruction between the nuclear arsenals of the US and of Russia. Then, we don't only rely on that, we also have treaties and understandings turned into arms control to put checks and limits on nuclear weapons and to try to make sure that those threats remain balanced so that you don't have one nuclear country thinking maybe it could win. Thirdly is the non-proliferation regime, a system that places controls on how many countries can have nuclear weapons. And fourth is nuclear disarmament. So there are various things that underpin the prevention of nuclear war. The concern is that in all four of those areas, things are changing And it's not clear we can rely on them in exactly the same way that we did in the past. Meanwhile, there is a really big argument among nuclear experts inside and outside government, in nuclear weapon states and outside nuclear weapon states about which of those things that prevent nuclear war are really important. And these divisions seem to be hindering attempts to work together on nuclear issues. So let's start with nuclear deterrence. The US and Russia have enough weapons to destroy each other and the world. But this leaves us with such a mutual vulnerability that actually they have refrained from trying. Let's bring in the ELN's Rishi Paul to explain more. So I'm here with Dr. Rishi Paul, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Leadership Network and an expert in nuclear strategy. Rishi, can you explain to us, you know, how does nuclear deterrence actually work?
2: So imagine a world such as ours, where there is more than one state that possesses nuclear weapons and they've pointed their nuclear weapons at each other. The question becomes, what holds them back from actually launching a first strike? The reason why no state, or we believe no state would want to go first is because nuclear armed states have locked themselves into a position of mutual vulnerability. This mutual vulnerability comes from the idea that if one state goes first, the other state would have enough time to retaliate in kind. This vulnerability is what preserves stability. Oppenheimer once said that this situation is like two scorpions in a bottle, each capable of killing the other, but only at the risk of his own life. But it gets a little bit more complicated than this. Because imagine, and I think it's easier to use particular examples, let's say Russia today decided to launch a first strike on the United States. The United States would have enough time to retaliate in kind and impose unacceptable costs. Another way of looking at this, which is how I think it's easier to describe, imagine two cowboys pointing their guns at one another. Instead of putting bullets in the revolvers, they put poison darts. So if one person fires first, it would take time for the poison to take effect. And so the person who has been shot has enough time to retaliate in kind. That's the situation that we're in today with the United States
0: and Russia. That's fascinating, but it seems very delicately balanced. How much can we rely on this system continuing to be stable with different states, maybe try to pursue their own nuclear programs? So today, there are four major threats
2: with countries that possess nuclear weapons. The first threat is on the Korean Peninsula, between North Korea, South Korea, and extended nuclear guarantees and commitments of the United States. The second area of concern is the Taiwan Strait. Between China and Taiwan, China has designs over Taiwan and believes it to be part of its national sovereign territory. The third area of concern is Eastern Europe, with the Ukraine crisis that could escalate quite quickly into a nuclear. The fourth is the Persian Gulf, Iran's desire to possess nuclear weapons. So the United States recently came to the conclusion that Iran now possesses enough fizar material to develop their own existential nuclear weapon capability. When I say existential, I mean that it, it hasn't yet developed a full nuclear posture, full of nuclear weapons, but they have enough to develop maybe one or two bombs. The fifth area of concern is South Asia, between India and Pakistan, which is commonly referred to as a nuclear flashpoint area because India and Pakistan have what some policy experts like to describe as violating the first law of nuclear politics, meaning that nuclear-armed states are not supposed to go to war with each other, except India and Pakistan have done, so the risks of escalation are higher.
0: Well, thanks, Rishi. You've given us a lot to keep us awake at night. But this delicate balance of deterrence could possibly break down. For one thing, it depends on leaders continuing to correctly calculate that they can't win, and also on leaders never getting to the point that they would be suicidal if it meant their enemies could also be destroyed. We could imagine, for example, what would Hitler have done in the bunker if he'd had a nuclear button there. There's also questions about whether new technologies might increase the risks of wrong information or miscalculation, As countries become tempted to use more AI, for example, to detect whether there are signs that their adversary is launching a nuclear attack against them. We'll definitely get into quite a lot of depth on that in a subsequent episode because it's really interesting but scary stuff. The other way that deterrence gets complicated is that we're no longer in a two-party arms race between the US and Russia, or you could call it a two-player game because a lot of people use game theory to explain deterrence, although it does seem a bit tasteless as well. But now it looks like China is seeking to have nuclear parity or even be the biggest nuclear power compared with the US. And then we actually have no idea what arms control should look like because the US thinks that it has to outnumber Russia and China in case they act together. But Russia and China don't trust each other enough to think that they are one single alliance. So if you get into this three-player game, each country is going to think that they should have as much as the other two put together, which doesn't suggest that you're easily going to get to a stable balance. Then, if other countries too think that they need to join this race, that raises risks further. So we would think that maybe... With the political setup changing and the technologies changing, the world could agree that it is a time to have more arms control and rein in the possibility of multiplayer nuclear racing, especially when the world probably has some other stuff that it could be spending its money on. But arms control too seems to be going through a really hard time, mainly because of geopolitics. Arms control depends on agreements between states, it depends upon diplomacy, And it depends on some basic functioning of the multilateral system, which is challenged by a whole bunch of factors. I'm here with Oliver Mayer, our Director of Research at the European Leadership Network and an expert on nuclear weapons and arms control, among other things. And I wondered if you could tell us, Oliver, where our modern system of Arms control comes from? What inspired this in the first place to put limits on nuclear weapons?
3: The nuclear arms control system was really triggered by a set of nuclear crises where the world moved very close to nuclear use, particularly the Cuban Missile Crisis, where I think decision makers afterwards, particularly in the United States and the Soviet Union, realized that they came too close to an escalation to a nuclear level than potential nuclear exchange. The initial reaction was actually to strengthen deterrence and build up nuclear forces, but also in conjunction with starting to think about measures to reduce nuclear risks, to establish a hotline, to provide more transparency, and then in the early 70s leading to a first set of nuclear arms control agreements that included reciprocal limits on a number of delivery systems. At that time, it wasn't yet possible to actually limit nuclear warheads, but both sides agreed to have an upper limit for missiles, bombers, submarines, and uh, that was big progress because that hadn't been done before. But it was really similar to today, the concern about nuclear war was what dro- was driving this set of agreements.
0: So people looked at the possibility of what could go wrong, and it was so bad they felt they had to act.
3: And then an additional incentive always in the background is, of course, to save money. Um, nuclear weapons are very, mm. very expensive. And if you have an unlimited arms race, then, of course, you need to spend a lot of money, and it's very hard to accommodate that in times of economic crisis in the early 1970s. It was one of such times, and... There are hopes that also today in the long run, the economics will actually be an incentive to agree on arms control too. We had increasing conflict between the nuclear weapon states. The five states, particularly China, France, the United Kingdom, Russia, and the United States. Conflicts among them that spilled over into the arms control field. We had new technologies entering the equation that called into question whether old models of strategic stability still hold. And we had increasingly leaderships that were not acting rationally, as you said, that were driven Mm. by other motivations.
0: When it comes to non-proliferation, this is something where there is general agreement that nuclear weapons shouldn't spread to yet more countries.
1: I'll be sure to be quizzing our panellists later on on exactly how this works, especially through the Non-Proliferation Treaty.
0: That treaty has actually been really successful. Compared to previous expectations, President Kennedy thought that, by now, the world would be full of many countries with nuclear weapons. But nuclear weapons are still held by only a very small number of states, there are five, the US, China, Russia, UK and France that are legally recognized as nuclear weapons states under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, while another four states have declared or undeclared nuclear weapons. So maybe proliferation has been a success. Fears that terrorist groups might get nukes or dirty bombs have also been fended off, not without a lot of very careful action. But This setup has depended on a lot of countries feeling that they don't need nuclear weapons because they have the protection of nuclear umbrellas, usually from the US or NATO, which means that they would rely on the US to deter any enemies that might want to point nukes at them. Today, countries are beginning to question whether that is enough. South Korea, has been talking about this because of its nuclear-armed neighbour, Saudi Arabia and a number of other countries in the Middle East have been hinting that if Iran crosses the nuclear threshold, they would feel that they would have to as well. And the most dramatic case is Ukraine, which I think you'll talk about in your panel later on. The Soviet Union used to keep a large nuclear arsenal, which a newly independent Ukraine handed over to Russia in the 1990s, precisely on the basis That they were supposed to have security assurances from several major powers, including the US and including Russia itself. And that bargain has obviously been blown out of the water, leading a number of Ukrainians to say, hey, nuclear disarmament might actually be a terrible idea. And disarmament has essentially stopped. There were successes in the 80s with partial disarmament between the US and Russia, And there have been a number of cases of full disarmament in terms of specific countries giving up arms, including South Africa at the time of transition from apartheid to Sweden, a little-known case that often surprises people, and most recently Libya, where Colonel Gaddafi made friends with the West by giving up his nuclear bombs, although that model is maybe not as attractive for others as it might have seemed at the time. Meanwhile, the nuclear-armed states are all rearming, modernizing, increasing their nuclear weapons, which they say is needed to keep deterrence balanced. But I mentioned that our field, the nuclear policy field, is bitterly divided. And there is this really fierce argument between those in favor of focusing on maintaining that deterrence balance and those who favor disarmament. So in theory, everyone is committed to disarmament under the Non-Proliferation Treaty. There's a very vague promise that nuclear-armed states will have a dialogue about getting to disarmament at some point, which is indefined in the future. Frustrations with the failure to actually implement that have led to a new treaty, the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which says that all nuclear weapons are illegal. And of course, that's something where, for once, all the nuclear-armed states can agree on something they totally reject this treaty. So having talked about why there are some risks that nuclear war might not be unthinkable, I'm going to hand over to Edan to bring in some expert guests to talk to us about how to fix it.
1: Amazing, thanks Jane. I hope you're as excited as I am now to go a little bit deeper into all of these topics, especially this debate about deterrence versus disarmament, and hopefully we'll explore a little bit more as well. Hello all, and welcome to our How to Fix It panel. In this section of the episode, we bring together experts from within the Never Network and leaders from all around the world discuss what people can do and are doing to limit, mitigate, or resolve the biggest risks that humanity faces. Today, we're exploring the first ever man-made existential risk, nuclear weapons. Today is a particularly appropriate day to discuss this topic, as not only is it the second episode of the OK Demo podcast, an incredibly important event in its own right, but we're also releasing this episode on the same day as the 2024 Doomsday Clock announcement which was let us know how many seconds scientists believe that we are to midnight, or in other words, how close humanity is to suffering a civilization-ending, existential, or global catastrophic disaster. On the topic of the Doomsday Clock, our first guest is John Pope from the US. John is the Chief Audience Officer at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, the organization that has maintained the Doomsday Clock since 1947 in response to the advent of nuclear weapons. Welcome, John. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me on. I'm also joined by never member Valeria Hesse. Valeria, who is from Ukraine, is a research coordinator at the Central European University in Vienna and a fellow at the Odessa Centre for Non-Proliferation, where she focuses on nuclear policy and risk reduction. Welcome, Valeria.
4: Thank you so much. Great to be here.
1: And our third and final guest is ELN policy fellow Dr. Onamide Samuel. Mide, who is from Nigeria, leads the ELN's work on bolstering the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and is also an honorary fellow at the University of Leicester. Hi, Olomide. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Now, our first question today, as we've led with the Doomsday Hook, I think it naturally has to go to John. And I think, firstly, we'd like to know a little bit about the history of the Doomsday Clock and how your scientists determine how close we are to midnight. So, last year, we announced the Doomsday
5: Clock as 90 seconds to midnight, which is the closest it's ever been in the entire history To put that into context, the Doomsday Clock has been around since 1947, when the bulletin was switching from a mimeographed like, literal bulletin to a full-fledged magazine, and someone realized they needed an image on the cover. So they found an artist, happened to be married to one of the atomic scientists who helped found the bulletin, and she came up with this design that kind of played on the idea of a countdown, which was already kind of part of the pop culture understanding of nuclear weapons, and basically showed a clock face of a minute hand moving towards midnight. That was on the first cover in 1947. And then in 1949, after the first Soviet nuclear test, the editor of the bulletin moved the hand forward to show that we were at greater risk. And that started this tradition going on seven decades now of moving the hand forward and backwards for different minutes to midnight to show what is the state, not just of nuclear risk, but of all sorts of existential risks, like climate change and disruptive technologies. And right now, we're the closest we've ever been, 90 seconds to midnight, because there's a lot of compounding crises happening. But in the past, we've been all the way to 17 minutes to midnight. So there's also a history of being able to move the clock back and make the world safer. So... We're out here trying to push a sense of urgency to make things better, not just a sense of
6: things are bad. I've always wondered about the doomsday clock, not necessarily about the methodology in a sense, but actually about, you know, what sorts of risks are included in the doomsday clocks calculation. So it was great that you highlighted that it goes beyond nuclear risk to other existential risks. And I was just wondering if there was any sort of weighting to the different existential risks.
5: So the clock is set by a board of experts that we call our Science and Security Board, and they meet at least in person twice a year and then discuss throughout the whole year, virtually or via email, you know, what's happening. And there's been discussions about, can we create a more concrete equation? And what they found is that measuring climate change versus nuclear risk versus new technology, like AI has become so much more advanced in this past year, didn't lend itself to exact quantification. So they've really focused just on meeting and discussing and asking themselves, are we safer than we were last year? And then are we safer than we were, you know, at different points in the 75 plus year history? and use that to kind of gauge the barometer of whether it should move forward or backward and how much.
6: That's extremely helpful, especially thinking of previous existential risk and comparing that to today. I think that's a full-fledged methodology. Trust the scientists
1: to have a good methodology. (laughs) (laughs) On the topic of risk, actually, I think we've spoken a lot about risk reduction already, and I know a lot of the nuclear field do, but I was wondering for our audience maybe a uh, Valeria, could you potentially explain risk reduction to us and how does it exactly work?
4: So when we talk about nuclear risks, we talk about the risk of nuclear use, and those uses could be either intentional or accidental and so in order to reduce nuclear risk, we can use the methodology, which I really like, developed by Wilfred Wan from UNIDIR, where we separate them into doctrinal risks, for example. And to reduce doctrinal risks, we could basically clarify the situations in which the n- nuclear weapons could be used or somehow circumscribing use conditions, stigmatizing overall use, etc. In terms of, for example, decreasing escalator risk, one refers increasing predictability of use conditions and preventing crises, and also strengthening nuclear restraint. And another situation can be, as said before, an accidental risk, which means that we need to have proper communications to contain consequences of error, for example, or enhance operator control over the weapons. Another and totally different category is unauthorized risk. And this is where states should bolster their security to deny access to unauthorized actors. And this is done through enhancing physical and digital safeguarding operations and improving risk assessment and management.
1: Amazing. Thanks, Valeria. It sounds quite interesting to know it's not just the technical side of things. There's a state basis. There's all these other factors, but um, with that in mind, actually, as we have been talking already about linking these existential risks to one another, I wonder if and if you could say anything about, well, maybe you, Valeria, you're actually first, could could comment anything about how the advent of like some new technologies may impact these risk assessments and these efforts at risk reduction.
4: With new technologies, we face a lot of different risks, especially as they pertain to IT, we can see some potential cybersecurity failures and some targeted operations to maybe authorize the use of nuclear weapon by either a state or non-state actor. We also could potentially face some intrusion to steal some information that would be very sensitive and could provoke escalation Those sorts of things, if you have any specific technology that you had in mind, we can explore it together.
6: I think this definitely builds on Valeria's contribution in the sense that whenever, now speaking on behalf of humanity, so underqualified to do that, but whenever new technologies are rolled out at scale to humanity in general, we usually have an idea of what we want these technologies to do. We have an idea of the functions we want these technologies to perform. So for example, cell phone rolled out the late 1990s. I remember the old Motorola block cell phones with the antennas, and it had a very simple function, you know, disconnect people from having to sit around and wait for a telephone call on a landline, speed up communication, speed up efficiency. And what we have today is not just the GSM mobile anymore, but we have something that's evolved into being our primary source of information collection it's evolved into being something that could be hijacked to spread misinformation and disinformation it's also evolved into a financial tool a tool that holds out biometric data and all sorts these were unanticipated uses for this technology when it was rolled out initially and with every other technological introduction we see the same thing where there's so many unanticipated uses So when it comes to nuclear command and control, when it comes to the potential for nuclear risk, we have to use the same thinking to approach the emergence of new technologies, especially potentially disruptive ones, where artificial intelligence and the discourse about the introduction of AI into NT3, the headline is, oh, we're going to have a situation where an artificial intelligence decides whether or not we push the nuclear button or to push the nuclear button on our behalf. And that is quite inflammatory and it grabs the headlines. But the reality is the unanticipated side of the introduction of AI is that most of the critical decision support functions, such as logistical planning, such as information analysis, such as sensory data and us making sense of our sensory capabilities are where AI fits best. But then if we have a situation where all of these decision support systems are overwhelmingly reliant on AI, then we would have a human in the loop. Right. But this human is so dependent on artificial intelligence that in retrospect, if a human pushes a button based off of information gathered by AI, was it really the human that pushed the button or did much of the thinking and calculation come from AI and the human was just a legal personality that pushed the button? So I think when we talk about introduction of tech, we really just have to think about unanticipated consequences of this.
5: I just wanted to add in that the signals and that point of decision making are so important to think about misinformation and disinformation and the way AI or social media can interact with it. But I think there's also this broader systems level issue happening where starting with any type of communication, but definitely accelerating in the fast few decades around the internet and social media and now AI, we've been hurting our ability to process misinformation and disinformation at a societal level, which is hurting our ability to create governance solutions for these problems, or if not to create them, to implement them. And that's been weakening our ability to not just tackle you know, nuclear risk, but climate change, the emergence of these technologies, and it's kind of weakened our entire political system. So there's that moment of decision, but also the fact that we have a weaker system overall, even before we get to the moment of decision.
4: I wanted to add that as much as we humans create a lot of risks, we know that we live not a black and white world, so we also can reduce those risks. And especially with the AI, it is incredibly important to keep human in the loop because AI can misinterpret things and obviously at the stages of development it is at the moment, even if It is extremely impressive. It's still not perfect, and I doubt it will ever be. So, that's a very important element to emphasize. And from my side, as a Ukrainian, definitely want to bring attention back to how escalatory the disinformation and misinformation became in the case of Russia's war against Ukraine. We all saw all the things related to disinformation about biolabs and dirty bombs and whatnot, and it did not add to reducing the general risks and tensions. Imagine the scale where it actually comes to a situation of an imminent nuclear risk and how disinformation can impact
1: them. How would you say... Russia's full-scale invasion has altered this landscape, because I think our field, we tend to focus a lot on preventing nuclear war, which naturally we should, but then how can that be weighed up against the dangers of a world of nuclear coercion, especially in light of these developments in tech and misinformation and so forth?
4: Indeed, Eden, as you said, the coercion really played a significant role in Russia's invasion because the invasion was led by explicit and implicit nuclear threats, exposed many core international challenges in the nuclear realm. So we had a powerful and yet very dangerous message being spread out. International security instruments failed, while nuclear deterrence and offensive coercion worked. Russia's coercive applications of nuclear threats continued reliance on nuclear weapons by the whole P-5 against the spirit of the obligations according to the non-proliferation treaty, and also solid opposition by them to the treaty and prohibition of nuclear weapons as a legally binding disarmament instrument, incentivize proliferation and create additional nuclear risks, obviously. So to avoid complete erosion of the non-proliferation norm and also the potential expansion of the number of nuclear weapons possessors, as well as the repetition of invasive wars under nuclear threats, the international community should do more, for example, recognize at least TPNW's complementarity to the nonproliferation treaty, and also somehow come to realistic and pragmatic, but yet gradual nuclear arms reductions. Otherwise, the messages that are spread do not look positive for the future of nonproliferation, from my point of view
1: definitely agree we need to have some way of actually, it can't be the case, it's a free-for-all for states to do as they act, contravene norms, contravene legally binding treaties just because they happen to have the biggest arsenal or the most powerful weapons. I'm just going to open up your response on the question to the panel here. So what are your thoughts in regards to how Russia's full-scale invasion has altered the landscape and also Valeria's response just then? I think another
5: important part of what's happened in the shift of the nuclear policy landscape since the invasion is it's opened up a little more space, and this might be my perspective within the US, of really questioning if deterrence can provide long term stability. I know there's been a long history of arguing against that, but it wasn't necessarily getting the same type of political traction in the US as it had elsewhere. And it's pretty hard to point to the war in Ukraine and say that, okay we had reached a stable point of arms control and like geopolitical stability. So while the first and foremost priority needs to be to end the war, I think that once the war is over, there's an opportunity to really think about what is a long-term, stable, geopolitical agreement, and that has to include figuring out an arms control or disarmament solution that is more creative and expansive than we've had in the past.
6: I would definitely say that nuclear deterrence as a concept, as a practice, actually enabled, much like Valeria highlighted, coercion and bullying by a nuclear weapon state against a non-nuclear weapon state in direct violation of a security guarantee that came about precisely because that state agreed to get rid of its nuclear weapons. So this really puts the idea of nuclear disarmament in a tough space in the sense that on one hand, you're seeing the ability of a state to take advantage of nuclear weapons to further its very narcissistic foreign policy goals. But the reality is that the conflict in Ukraine has also highlighted against what many deterrent proponents have said for the longest time, that nuclear weapons actually restrict the occurrence of conventional conflict between and among great powers. In this case, nuclear weapons did precisely the opposite. It enabled the initiation of a conventional conflict. And This conflict is one that has the potential of destabilizing the European region even further. So Ukraine was a highlight in myth-busting one of the foundational assumptions of nuclear deterrence in a way that we haven't seen in the past 60 years or so.
4: Yeah, it has been really worrisome lately. Because we see not less, but more and more reliance on nuclear weapons. And it seems like Russia has been saying a lot of things regarding the Eastern Europe in general. And also we see there is a lot of military planning going on about potential destabilization in the next couple of years on the eastern flank of NATO. And it is quite worrisome. It doesn't comfort me at all somehow.
1: Yes, it's almost like the wrong lessons are being learned in relation to, you know, this current environment of deterrence seeming to be, almost be enabling these conventional conflicts. A lot of the time there's this debate about disarmament versus deterrence. Would you say that nuclear disarmament, like, you know, the end goal, I think, for a lot of people in our field, is it still possible in this current environment?
0: It
4: is always possible when there is a will. However, I believe sincerely that we might have missed the window of opportunity to achieve progress on this. And one of my fears is that we will see more proliferation and potentially a catastrophe before we actually come to reductions again. Think about signals Ukraine's disarmament gave in the end. It gave up nuclear weapons that it inherited from the Soviet Union and ended up being invaded 30 years after. So, Russia now does not hesitate also to closely cooperate with violators such as the DPRK. Why would the countries bother to maintain non-proliferation regime? Because of the norm, I hope. But again, non-proliferation is a norm because it has been largely upheld. It is not unimaginable that that can change, and this is something that sometimes keeps me up at night. I have to say.
6: I absolutely agree with Valeria in this regard because it's not the best thing or the most palatable thing to say, but I think we have reached a point in human history where perhaps nuclear disarmament can only become viable after some sort of nuclear catastrophe occurs because we become so desensitized to the very glaring risks that nuclear weapons would cause within the community. And outside the expert community, I don't think there's enough sensitization about the catastrophic humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons use because of, in some ways, competing existential challenges that have dominated you know, the non-nuclear expert discourse. And it's a really grim outlook because it's almost cyclical where we've gotten accustomed to nuclear deterrence almost appearing to be a sustainable means of organizing international security precisely because there hasn't been nuclear weapons use, But I think it's very unsustainable to bet the future of humanity on the whims of only a few countries. And this is a similar dynamic when we look at the norm of non-proliferation, because what we've learned in the past 70 years of nuclear weapons existing is that actually states that acquire nuclear weapons or are on the brink of acquiring nuclear weapons almost have unparalleled diplomatic ability to stay relevant in international security in a way that cannot be competed against by non-nuclear weapon states. India's moment of proliferation, for example, North Korea's moment of proliferation, in many ways, these made the states regional powers that had to be included in global politics whenever great powers were discussed in those regions. And now we're seeing the same thing with Iran, where even just the threat of proliferation has made it a central key player in the Middle East. And all of this brinksmanship shows the value of nuclear weapons over the value of nuclear disarmament. But the reality is that we can't have a sustainable future with nuclear weapons on the planet. That risk would always remain as long as nuclear weapons exist, And I think we just have to be cognizant of that as a community of people.
5: Just to jump in, I I don't disagree with my colleagues at all. We're at a point of really, really extreme risk of, you know, arms racing that's already happening, the potential for a lot more proliferation and, you know, even the potential for use and breaking of that, you know, fundamental norm around nuclear weapons. And that definitely keeps me up at night, keeps me worried, keeps me focused on this type of work. It's you know, it's why the doomsday clock is set at 90 seconds to midnight, along with all these other cascading crises. What I will say, just to inject a note of optimism into the conversation, is that historically, it, you know, arms control, disarmament, you know, abolition, not just on nuclear weapons, but on other things in the past, are always impossible until they're not. And you need those points of discontinuity where suddenly the fundamentals change and then there can be big progress on these things. Um, I I think the end of the war in Ukraine, when it eventually comes, is going to be such a point of discontinuity. And, you know, the biggest value from that will be the end of the suffering of people in Ukraine. But there are also all of these secondary effects of being able to look for new ways to organize things and potentially create, you know, a safer world. To do that, we are not going to just need political leaders to, you know, advocate for it, but we're going to need broad-based public attention and activation and motivation on these things. And the other sign of optimism I see in, you know, my conversations and the bulletin's web traffic numbers and, you know, the activists that I talk to is that people are paying much more attention to nuclear weapons issues than they were, you know, three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, um, because the war in Ukraine has forefronted an issue that a lot of folks kind of were writing off and saying, oh, that's kind of historical or solved, even though we all know that it was still continuing to cause risk. So hopefully we can find a way to capture that attention and energy in a positive direction, not in a fearful direction that leads to, you know, more buildup and arms control and proliferation and I think that's the work of, you know, all the experts and the activists that focus on nuclear weapons issues. It's to recognize that it's a really hard political situation to create solutions and full implementation right now. But it's a really important moment to be doing education and awareness work and to be doing the creative thinking about what an eventual solution will look like.
4: I wanted to comment on something that Ola said. As experts, we actually rarely hear about nuclear weapons effects on people or systems in general, economies, political systems, agriculture, especially if we are not the technical experts, if we are like more on the international relations side, international policy side. And caring about humanitarian effects is almost considered weak and is stigmatized. And your label as an advocate, as an activist and not as a researcher anymore as soon as you start speaking about them. But it is very, very important to include that understanding. And I made a very revealing discovery for myself in 2023 when I finally got to read two very interesting and very relevant reports, uh, one by Unity or again, uh, that, which is called um, An Illusion of Safety, Challenges of Nuclear Weapon Detonations, and the other one is Unspeakable Suffering, the Humanitarian Impact of Nuclear Weapons by ICANN from 2013. And both of them cover those humanitarian aspects and economical aspects of even a single detonation in a very populated um, industrial area where you know especially if it's like an economic center the whole world would feel the result of even one nuclear weapon falling on such a center considering how globalized the world is now even with all those crises and conflicts and wars going on i think this is one things that all the schools and workshops and presentations Should focus on just like describing the effects, what they actually are, what they do to cities, what they do to people, what they do to nature and, you know, food systems. I think this is something that we're missing and focus only on like the hardcore, hard security issues, somehow generalizing them and imagining that they exist in a vacuum, which they don't.
5: Yeah. Just to piggyback on that. It's not just the effects of, you know, if something were to be used, but the effects of the, you know, the mining, the production, the maintenance, the testing. That's something that, you know, we're still trying to process in the US and around the world. And I know that the most recent meeting of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons has really made a focus. Like, I think it is a really powerful message to. Remind people that there is a cost just for maintaining these weapons, and not just a financial cost. Even though the financial cost is huge, but an actual human cost.
6: Absolutely agree with John and Valeria, and thank you, John, for highlighting the back end of the, you know, system that sustains nuclear weapons: the mining, the exploitation of the of humans and environments, and the frankly unsafe conditions in which these exploitation occurs. Um, And I think it's very important to reiterate what Valeria said as well about how the humanitarian impacts are seen as somehow less complex and less scientific to explore. But the reality is that there is an obligation in every state that has signed on to the Geneva Conventions to actually understand and analyze and assess the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons, at least on the basis of proportionality of use, on the ability of you know, states to have weapons that discriminate between civilians and combatants. Nuclear weapons don't, you know, measure up to any of these criteria. And so it's still quite perplexing that states choose to legitimise the retention of nuclear weapons when they're clearly or the use of these weapons will clearly be in contravention of humanitarian law. Um a threat of use is something that we're discussing quite, you know, um, candidly at the ELN and within the MPT process. But You know, nuclear deterrence relies on a credible threat of use of nuclear weapons. There has to be, you know, credibility to these threats, which means actual use. And so it's really important that the policy community understands the legal ramifications and requirements to understand humanitarian impacts.
4: Something that Ola said made me think, or actually made me remember, I was never a like disarmament-oriented person until I actually became one in 2022, when I saw the other side of nuclear weapons that became very real was Russia's war against Ukraine being led under nuclear threats. And we always say that nuclear weapons do not kill people. They are there just for deterrence purposes. However, if you translate it to what happened in Ukraine, they actually enabled killing of people and that's when my whole mindset said to like okay probably the lowest nuclear risks exist when the nuclear weapons do not exist
1: absolutely recently a u.s official colin carl said that in september 2022 the u.s intelligence community thought that the risk of a russian nuclear use against ukraine could be as high as 50 percent but they then sort of revised it down How should the world actually now respond in relation to these elevated risks? I know we've all said we need to be more creative and transformative, but what are some kind of like, you know, in the short term, not even after the war, how should the world in general be responding now to this heightened credibility of these threats?
6: I'll jump in. First up, I think there's plenty that we can do in this error of heightened nuclear tensions. And there's plenty that's already been done. It's just not being given the attention that it deserves. Um, the first, and this has been discussed a, a bit in this podcast, is we have an international treaty that outlaws the possession, use, and threat of use of nuclear weapons. Um, and I think this is something that deserves greater attention um, Particularly because it actually builds on existing systems in much of the global south that outlaws the use and threat abuse of nuclear weapons. And those are nuclear weapons free zones. I think citizens in these areas need to speak out very clearly about how despite their repeated efforts to insulate themselves from the ramifications of nuclear deterrence, they are still at risk of realities like a potential nuclear winter if, you know, there is a nuclear exchange between two distant countries that they have no say in there policy formulation, right? So there has to be some more speaking up, especially from states that have already isolated themselves from nuclear deterrence.
4: Well, I absolutely agree with Ola. I do believe since the threat comes from Russia, we have to address that threat first if we are talking about this particular war and the situation of today. So I would say what we can do as humanity, as community, is To ensure that whether or not the threat is real, nothing is going to change. Was Russia even using nuclear weapons in Ukraine? And I mean, as Ukrainian, this is like the absolute worst thing that can happen. At the same time, I am pretty proud of my people because they have been pretty successful in transmitting that message that, okay, uh, even if nuclear war happens, we are going to continue fighting uh, until we cannot anymore. And I assume that they were considering just like one weapon landing somewhere. Um, And uh, Open Nuclear Network, by the way, is currently working on exploring potential scenarios of uh, nuclear use in Ukraine uh, that Russia could... uh, explore in its planning and it's going to be coming up. So I encourage you to check it out when it comes out. But anyway, we have to agree on one thing, that nuclear weapons cannot be used and nuclear war cannot be fought. And in this sense, I think that the P5 countries that possess nuclear weapons actually sent clear signals to Russia at the moment of the highest pressure Uh, in October 2022. And since then, actually, the nuclear risks uh, have become a little lower, still non-zero. We still need to work on it. But one of the things that we absolutely need to emphasize is that even their rhetoric, even their use is not going to change anything, and they are not going to achieve their
0: goals.
5: I guess I won't go into any other kind of policy solutions. I I agree that, you know, there's a long-term need for a settlement and that the P5 has been finding ways to really push on Russia to reinforce the norm that there shouldn't be use. And I think maybe rolling back to what we can do as individuals, you know, there's uh, like over 50 countries in the world have national elections this year. It covers more than 50% of the global population. And we can all make sure that this is a politically salient issue and that We're pushing for leaders that aren't going to escalate risk but continue to find ways to de-escalate it. Um, There are certainly irresponsible leaders within P5 countries that are going to be seeking to win those elections or to gain power. And, you know, at the citizen level, we can push back on that and we can make anyone who asks for our vote show that they take the seriousness of this threat realistically and we can push them towards solutions that will, you know, long term
1: reduce the threat or make it go away entirely. I think we've alluded to this quite a lot. Ordinary people definitely have a voice in this, like, you know, that's without a doubt. I think now ordinary people, activists, once informed by nuclear experts or when things are brought into discourses by, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine by Oppenheimer, which has been, you know, sweeping the award season recently, but as we've now determined that ordinary people do have a voice in this, how can they use that voice?
4: I absolutely believe that everyone has a voice in uh, nuclear risk reduction and disarmament if that is their choice. And we do have influence. We have um, our leaders that we elect in democratic countries to whom we can speak and express our political will. But we also have to educate ourselves. And I think one of the um, ways for nuclear community, nuclear policy community to reach out to people is to make the materials that we work on a little bit more accessible for people to understand how big of a risk it is and how to address the uh, the risk and how they can be more influential in expressing their thoughts. And I'm talking now about exploring all the cool things like what we are doing now, having a podcast. Uh, Or producing some materials for social media that actually are engaging and allow people to understand complicated issues in simple ways. And I think uh, one of the cool things that the community can take uh, is learning how to do storytelling in order to engage people and make them more aware of the world we live in. Fun thing, there is barely anyone in my circle who believes that in general, in the long-term future, we should still have nuclear weapons. Everyone, almost everyone, believes in nuclear disarmament at some point. And um, a group of future and foresight uh, learners called peace and security changemakers, makers. Uh, which I have been a part of, actually explored uh, futures in two different groups. And we came to almost the same future where the nuclear weapons do not exist. So we don't want nuclear weapons to exist, the majority of us, but we just don't know how to get there. And we have to create a way to get there.
6: I definitely agree with John and Valeria's recommendations, precisely because nuclear disarmament education exists within an information ecosystem that can be quite powerful and have direct impact on the behavior of states. Think about the fact that a few weeks ago, South Africa took Israel to the International Court of Justice, and part of the evidence given to the International Court of Justice were videos recorded through mobile phones, shared on social media. And much of the pressure behind states escalating this issue to the ICJ stemmed from the growing global community of activists against particular occurrences, a community that doesn't necessarily respect borders because humans are now being more and more socialized into interacting with people from all around the world, regardless of national origin. Imagine nuclear disarmament education being inserted in a similar way that activism for you know, the ceasefire in Gaza was, the global mobilization that would occur from this would be significant enough that none of the P5 will be able to ignore. Let's remember that most of the P5 are democratic states and they have to respond to democratic pressure if that pressure is enough. And so I think public mobilization against nuclear weapons is a very possible thing in today's world in a way that we haven't seen in history.
1: Thank you, Ola. And over to you, John, for the final thoughts on that note. Um, I'm, I'm liking this sort of like citizen empowerment thing we're finishing on. Yeah,
5: I'll add I, I've read a lot of survey research results and focus group data uh, to try to understand what people think about nuclear weapons. And so often it's not that they disagree with you know fundamental goals of disarmament or arms control. It's that they feel like it's an issue that's too complex for them to have an opinion on and i think the key thing to like take away from this if you're you know an interested member of the public or you're an expert or an advocate that's working on this is that people shouldn't feel that they have the responsibility to know the half-life of uranium 235 or um you know exact specifications of missiles you you need to think about this just like any other political issue it's about looking for experts and systems that reflect your values and advocating for those um, same as we do in healthcare and education and you know every other issue that's complex in our society and you can engage on that level it's important to educate yourself but you don't need to become the be-all end-all expert you know you can look for things that amplify a world that you want to exist and advocate for that
1: Thanks, Sean. That was really nice to hear for your final comment. It's really good to know that we can, you know, as citizens in these democracies, outside of democracies, we can actually mobilize and, you know, treat nuclear the same way we would something else. To ensure that we build the, you know, across society, the platform we need to argue to get states to limit the risk, limit their their proliferation and all these other things. I'd like to thank you all, I'd like to thank John, Valeria and Olomide for joining and contributing to today's discussion. We're now going to move back to Jane, who's going to have a look at an example from history where humanity has been on the very edge of disaster from nuclear war and how we managed to come back from the brink. So yes, over to you Jane.
0: So now we're going to turn back the clock and look at some lessons from history. And I'm here with Sahil Shah, who is a programme manager and senior fellow with the Council on Strategic Risks, an organisation that looks at a whole range of major risks to humanity and the planet. And Sahil's programme focuses particularly on strategic weapons. And what we'd love to hear from you today, Sahil, is that... On one hand, we can look back and say, yes, nuclear deterrence has worked and nuclear war hasn't happened. But also, there seem to have been some times in history that we did come dangerously close to the brink. And I wondered if you could tell us more about that.
7: Great. Thank you so much for having me, Jane. I think a great example is from 1983. To set some context, President Reagan had announced his Star Wars initiative NATO had deployed medium range missiles in Europe the Kremlin had just walked out of arms reduction talks a trigger-happy Soviet air defense commander shot down a South Korean passenger airliner and a lot of provocative moves also on the side of the west and they Paranoid Politburo figures in the Soviet Union with backgrounds in intelligence really thought that the U.S. was preparing for a surprise nuclear attack. So with this context in mind, there's a famous incident from September of that year where a deputy chief of a department for combat algorithms at a military facility, he basically was able to stop the Soviet Union from reacting to what turned out to be a false alarm. And this is a very famous incident. He's known as the man who saved the world. But in the end, it basically came down to the fact that there was a satellite system of about nine satellites that were used to try to spot a potential launch of American nuclear weapons. You know, the bases in the U.S. held over a thousand ICBMs that carried nuclear warheads, and they would be able to reach the Soviet Union in 35 minutes. So these satellites monitored things and through infrared sensors and other means, it would pick up on whether or not there was an incoming attack. And and on that day, there seemed to be an incoming attack, but there was only about a margin of 10 minutes warning or maybe 10 to 12 minutes to decide what to do based on having this kind of system. But unfortunately, it also took 10 to 12 minutes for them to check whether or not their system their computer system was behaving properly or whether or not there was a glitch in the system. So it really wasn't a backup. The system had had glitches before and Petrov made the decision basically on his own accord, despite what he was seeing on the system, to report it as a false alarm.
0: Wow, that's incredible and sounds like the the worst decision anyone would ever have to make. But it makes me worried as well about what happens if we are getting more reliant on computers and AI systems. I mean, it's a very, very different case, but I'm sitting here in London and we've just had this scandal in the UK at the post office with many people having been wrongly accused of fraud because of errors that were made by a very expensive IT system. And for a long time, people basically thought in senior positions, the computer can't be wrong so you know is this something else that we need to to worry about to make sure that people can keep saving the world in future
7: absolutely and it's great that the ELN and CSR work together on trying to do some deep dive research on looking at how emerging technologies like AI are affecting nuclear decision making and there's a real risk that The data poisoning that was evident in this episode could easily happen today um, because of just the sheer amount of information that exists and the ability for that information to be manipulated. And it's very difficult to understand how AI is going to shape the nuclear landscape. But we do know that even in our everyday civilian use, we're using AI more and more to obtain information, process information, create information, Um, and this obviously will affect uh, military operations and thinking as well. So it's definitely a very dangerous new (laughs) trend, I would say. And there needs to be an ability that we prevent novel technologies to combine with nuclear weapons. We definitely don't want to see AI getting close to command and control, for example. We need to keep a human in the loop, but there's much more that needs to be done outside of that to make sure that AI and other emerging technologies don't kind of create more ambiguity or more ladders of potential escalation.
0: Thanks. Data poisoning is a new term to me, but a very good one. And I'm just struck how much in this episode we have been coming back to questions of information, misinformation and disinformation. We'll talk more in future about AI and nukes and hope to continue the conversation with you, Sahil. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Those were really interesting points there from Sahil bringing us back to the issues of new technologies, misinformation, and basically the potential for us humans to get confused.
1: Exactly. It was one of the ones where it's almost, it feels with nuclear war because it's something that I think a lot of the time in the popular imagination, it's, you know, it's a president clicking a button. It's a very intentional thing. I think it's quite important to bring to the, you know, the fore that. This is something that could also be sleepwalked towards almost. You know, it's one of the ones where it isn't something that intentional. I think we've had had a great episode today. I really enjoyed everything we said. Was there anything that particularly stuck with you, Jane, about all of our discussions today? You know, we've had Rishi, we've had Oliver, we've had the panel, Sahil. What's really stuck in your brain?
0: Well, I think for me, there's three things. I mean, I continue to think that we just cannot rely on nuclear deterrence being endlessly sustainable when the dynamics are changing so much. At the same time... We all have an interest, actually, I would argue, in making sure that it doesn't collapse because those scenarios are dreadful. But I think we need to be thinking about how our security paradigms can change, you know, with a world that involves many more actors, more technologies, and a very high chance of nuclear weapons proliferating in a way that we haven't seen before. Also, it's come out from, you know, more than one of our speakers that sometimes... It is a crisis that can prompt people to make a change. But at the end of the day, that is up to people. There has to be action and leadership to make that happen. It's not something automatic. That's going to be a recurring theme probably in other areas that we talk about. And then just finally you know thinking about this this issue of disinformation and misinformation it was interesting to see very recently that the world economic forum's global risks report prepared for davos is surveyed you know over 1200 risk experts and between them they judged that the most severe global risk was one from foreign or domestic actors using misinformation and disinformation maliciously to divide people socially and politically. It's fascinating that that has emerged as the top concern, but it does seem like it's not just a concern in itself, it's a a risk multiplier. It's something that can make all these big risks that we're talking about much harder to deal with. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think the misinformation angle is so relevant today because, um, you know, a lot of the time when you're scrolling on social media, for instance, you see it not not just in the nuclear space, but in terms of like a lot of politics globally, things like deep fakes, you'll see things like mistributed quotes, but then you'll have, you know, back in the day you could misquote someone and lie about someone, let's say some saber rattling, um, but now you could literally manufacture a fake video of someone saying it, it's terrifying. But I, w- I will say in terms of like some safeguards almost, what stuck with me was... It was John, Oller and Valeria talking about people power in this way, whereby, you know, if you can inform people by, for instance, this podcast, publications, getting things to the popular imagination. If you can use these sort of advancements in new tech and the information economy to get ordinary people to actually know the real facts rather than just see something that's like a scary TikTok or Twitter fake, that is a way you can safeguard about it by having an educated, mobilized, informed and active citizen population to sort of, you know, try and uphold the deterrence that's kept us safe in the meantime, whilst also trying to see what else could we do that is safer and more sustainable and more creative for the long run to avoid a nuclear war or or other similar existential risks. And I think a lot of this boils down to why I feel talking about nuclear weapons nowadays is quite interesting in a way that, you know, it's been brought to the popular imagination by films, by the war in Ukraine... Even before that, I'd say a little bit by things like Iran, but um, it is the new tech angle. And it's scary to hear about, you know, like Saha was saying just then, that new tech, even in the 80s, could lead to us sleepwalking towards these disasters again. But I do like the fact that there is research being done now on how we can try and mitigate the sort of danger of a computer going wrong. And I think uh, Alice Saltini, our research coordinator, recently did some work with the ELN. Um, exactly about how, like, you know, P5 countries, NATO need to start thinking about: Is it safe to be putting AI in nuclear space all the time? Should we pause this until we really know what we can do, how it works, how we can regulate it, and what the unintended consequences could be, so we can properly safeguard against it.
0: Well, we should get Aliche on in a future episode. I think that will all be really like interesting to dig into further. But I've got to say, I think the new tech stuff is, is super interesting. But there is also a case for remembering the old and apparently boring technology. You know, if you look at the Davos risks report, for example, there's a big section on new technologies and when you dig into it, it does talk a lot about nuclear but there's something going on with political attention spans, I think. People, you know, they kind of neglected nuclear risks for a long time partly because this just seemed like granddad's boring old thing Uh, and sadly it's still there but also we can learn a lot from granddad as it were that is so interesting that, you know, the US and Russia have got a lot of this expertise on preventing Armageddon between them. And we need to know that history. We need to figure out how that can be applied in a more complex world. And we need also Chinese experts to be studying that history and, you know, using it for ideas as well on how to manage, you know, the new geopolitical competition. But yeah, I do agree that everyone can start by listening to OK Doomer. I like the way you got that plug in there. Thanks, Eden.
1: Absolutely necessary. Exactly. I think as well, another little never plug here. But on that intergenerational note, that is so important that we do not forget that expertise. We, You know, it didn't end at the Cold War. And I think that's been too much of a consensus in too many people's minds for far too long. So... Hopefully we are leading the change we want to see in the world. <laughs>
0: That's a nice note to end on. Thanks to Eda and thanks to all of our guests. And we'll be back soon with a look at the hot topic of climate change. Oh, I'm sorry for that pun. I couldn't help myself.
1: I liked it. Don't worry.
0: So this has been Jane Kinnanmont from the European Leadership Network.
1: And I'm Eden Simpson, also from the European Leadership Network. And remember, it's all okay, Duma.